Well, John Paul Sartre, famous 20th century French philosopher, Sartre was appalled by the idea of God's omniscience. The idea of a God who knew your innermost thoughts, who knew you exhaustively, who was always watching, was unnerving and repulsive to Sartre. It was something like living in a cosmic police state. He called such a God a cosmic voyeur. And as far as I know, Sartre was only concerned with God's knowledge of things present. He did not, I believe, have divine foreknowledge, knowledge of the future in view. But we can assume that that would not have lessened, but would only have increased his disgust. And yet, for David, as we heard read in Psalm 139, right, and for the church historically, the very same idea, God's intimate acquaintance with us, including our futures, was a source of great comfort and great joy, even a source of wonder. So I want to look this morning at this doctrine of the all-seeing, all-knowing God under three headings. They're there in the back of your bulletin, knowledge, will, wisdom, knowledge, will, and wisdom. So first then, knowledge. Let's begin with a definition. When we speak of omniscience, we mean that God knows all there is to know. That is, he knows the past, he knows the present, and he knows the future, including all possible worlds and all possible futures. He knows them fully, he knows them completely, he knows them in exhaustive detail. Here's David on this in the classic, one of the classical places where God's omniscience is taught. Psalm 139 again. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and you're acquainted with all my ways. Right, that's, that's exhaustive knowledge of all things present before God's eyes. But David extends this, right? He extends this into the future. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. So all my future speech acts, David says, are known in advance. And later, in the same psalm, he says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book, in God's book, they were written, every one of them, all the days that were framed or ordained for me, before one of them came to be. All of your future days, right? the exact span of every human life is known to God and it's written in his book. And we know from the rest of the scripture that this book is eternal. God's not furiously scribbling in his book as history unfolds. Such knowledge, such knowledge, unlike for Sartre, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, David says. It's high. I can't attain it. Right? It operates on some other level. 
There is, David is saying, something wonderful, high, ineffable, unattainable, unmanageable in God's knowledge. And of course, we know the character of this God. And we know that to be known exhaustively by him is to be loved exhaustively by him. God is, Job says, perfect in knowledge. It's a perfection. Psalm 147 says the knowledge of God is unsearchable. Or to sum it up, John says in his first epistle, God knows all things. Now, we have to probe a little further into the nature of this knowledge. And here what I'd like to do is connect up a lot of what we've already learned about the being of God and connect it to his knowledge. So, for example, right, we've already seen that God is simple, meaning he is an uncompounded unity. And that means no aspect of God can be isolated from any other aspect. Right? We have a tendency to want to do this. So all the attributes of God imply all the other attributes, and that's putting it very mildly. I'll put it more strongly. God's knowledge is God. What God has, he is. There is nothing in God that is not God. God's knowledge is God. So when we think of the knowledge then, right? let's, let's think of it in connection with God's eternity. If God is eternal, then he exists outside of time. There's a whole sermon on this, I believe, already out there. Right? Then God exists outside of time, and it is no way constrained by time. Thus, the question of God knowing the future is really a non-issue. The whole thing is kind of a yawn. People get all tangled up about this. Does God know the future? Does he just know contingent things? Does he know this? Does he know that? There's no past, and there's no present, and there's no future to God. He just is. He lives in the eternal now. He sees all of time in one act. God knows everything by consulting his own being. What the tradition has classically called his decrees. God knows everything by knowing God, by knowing himself. Right? The whole ministry of the prophets, which can look to us like predicting or foretelling the future, is for God no harder or different. It is neither harder nor different from just knowing the present. So, of course, God has detailed foreknowledge. Scripture teaches this in dozens of places. Jeremiah and Paul are both set apart and called to their ministries from the womb. And this foreknowledge would include God knowing all possible futures. So, for example, 1 Samuel 23, David is fleeing from Saul. He prays to the Lord. He says this, Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And what does the Lord say? Does he say, look, I I need a few more pieces of data. I need a couple more. I'll let you know in ten minutes. As we get closer to the event, I'll be able to tell you what's going to happen. He says, no, yes, they're going to come down. Saul's going to come down. And then David says, well, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord says, yes, they will surrender you. So God doesn't just know the options. He knows the outcomes. 
There's nothing contingent to God. It's an impossibility to anyone who embraces classical Christian theism. There's nothing potential to God. Why? Because there's nothing contingent or potential in God. What God knows, he knows from eternity. So any kind of fluctuation or change in God's knowledge would be fluctuation or change in God's eternity, in God's godness. God's knowledge is eternal. God's knowledge is God. He knows the end from the beginning, as Isaiah 40 through 48 repeatedly tells us. He knows the end from the beginning because he is the end and the beginning, the alpha and the omega. Or think of the immutability of God. The immutability of God would entail that God's knowledge is as full, as perfect as his unchanging being. God's knowledge is unchanging. Think of God's simplicity, which I've already alluded to. That means God is uncomposed of parts. So his knowledge, his will, what we call his attributes, his goodness, his love, his righteousness, all of these things are not parts of God. They are one and indeed identical in his being. So if God's knowledge is contingent or God's knowledge is incomplete, which many Christians hold it to be, then God's will and all of God's attributes share the same deficiency. God's knowledge is simple, uncomposed, fully actual, without any potential. Or consider God as infinite. Do you think you can have a God who doesn't know everything and still maintain his infinity? Good luck with that. If God is infinite, then his knowledge is infinite. Here's Stephen Charnock on this. If his understanding be infinite, then he knows all things whatsoever that can be known, else his understanding would have bounds, and what has limits is not infinite but finite. Or what about God's aseity? God's utter independent fullness as the I am. Can that God be awaiting creaturely choices for his knowledge? God simply is independent of the creature, which means his knowledge simply is independent of the creature. In short, the mistakes here come from people not seeing robustly enough that God's knowledge is identical with his essence. Modern Christians generally don't believe this, and I'll get to some reasons why and what we do believe in a minute. God is his knowledge. And thus God knows all things in a single intuition, in a single action. The perfect act by which he is God, by which he lives as God. He knows all things then, not by observing or by reasoning to them or reacting to them. He doesn't move. God does not move from premises to conclusions. Right? We call that discursive reasoning. Humans do it. God doesn't do it. God doesn't have to process new information. He knows everything by eternally consulting his own being as God. Now, this might sound strange or new or weird to some of you. It's just the Christian tradition. Here's the great Dutch theologian Hermann Bavink. For this reason, his knowledge is undivided, simple, unchangeable, eternal. He knows all things instantaneously, simultaneously, from eternity. All things are eternally present to his mind's eye. At every point, then. He has the knowledge of the creator and not the knowledge of a creature. 
And this is our problem. We think that his knowledge is sort of like ours, only more extensive, maybe more accurate. That's because we are idolaters by nature who are constantly correlating God to ourselves. God's knowledge is the knowledge of the creator. Our knowledge is the knowledge of creatures, and thus they are fundamentally different. His knowledge is creative and causal, meaning things are and things happen because God knows them. Not vice versa as it is for us. Right? Things are and things happen because God knows them. But for us, it's the opposite. So, for example, we know, I know the piano is black because I I look over there, or I remember it. Or I know the rose is red because I look out and see it. We know it by looking. Or we know that 5 minus 3 equals 2 because we do the math. We discover these things. But God's knowledge is what causes the rose to be red. He doesn't need to check. He doesn't need to look. His knowledge is what causes, not what agrees with, but what causes all truths of mathematics to be. He doesn't have to work the proofs out. Same thing with contingent events in history. It's his knowing of them that causes them to be. To get this wrong is, again, to turn God into a kind of glorified creature. Right? We, we think this way. We think, well, if this happens and then that happens and then God, how's God... Pro-? The, the whole frame of thinking this way is a frame in which God is just a giant, almost supercomputer. A really good one. A really loving one. So, here's Augustine on this. By the way, I've noticed this as I go through this, this, this series on God that I'm, I'm appealing to a few theologians, Bavings one, but Augustine all the time. You, you could do worse than just go back and read Augustine on all of this stuff. But here's Augustine in the 4th century. It is true of all his creatures, both spiritual and corporal, that he does not know them because they are, but they are because he knows them. God's knowledge actually causes things to be. What things? Everything. <laughs> right? There is no event No person, no molecule that isn't caused by the eternal knowledge of God. So Augustine, again, he does not know his creatures because they are, but they are because he knows them. By thinking, the object that he thinks comes into being. Future human choices are because God knows them. God does not know them because they are. Again, Why do we get all this backwards? What a friend of mine calls correlativism. We're always correlating God to ourselves. We don't really start with the incomprehensible, transcendent God of classical Christian theism. We start with ourselves, and we kind of try and reason back up there, and then when we hit difficulties, we say, well, I mean, maybe, maybe God has to process some information. This is a form of cognitive idolatry. So it turns out that to not affirm the doctrine of the absolutely all-knowing God, the God who is his knowledge, is not merely a difference over like free will 
or salvation, right? It's, it's not a question of, am I an Arminian or a Calvinist, first of all. It's first and foremost a question of whether the person holds to classical Christian theism or not. Right? Behind these questions is the question of the nature of the kind of God we're talking about. So that's knowledge. The second point is will. So in us creatures, in creatures, knowledge and will, or will and knowledge, are knowledge and intellect, they're, they're distinguished. Traditionally, we talk about human beings having intellect and will as the two faculties of the soul. Right? But in God, will and intellect are one. So everything I've just said about God's knowledge applies to God's will. You might think, all right, we're starting to catch on to this. <laughs> you say this a lot. Well, think of the implications of this, though. It means that God has an eternal, flawlessly executed will that is traditionally known as his decree. Right? Thus the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith. God, from all eternity, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. You might think, well, that's just Calvinist, uh, this crazy bunch of crazy Calvinists. That just follows from your doctrine of God. That's the decree, the eternal, unchangeable counsel of God. Listen to Isaiah here. Isaiah says, I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So notice this in the prophet Isaiah. The decree follows from this simple fact. I am God, there is no other. Therefore, all I decree, my eternal counsel shall stand. Of all that opposes that counsel, right, the psalmist says the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel embraces incidental things, random things, right? The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. It embraces even evil events. Here's Proverbs 16. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. Sounds like a Calvinist scribe edited the text, doesn't it? The book of Acts tells us. We heard this read this morning. I hope you heard this this morning. That Jesus was delivered up by the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, and yet this did not undermine human agency or guilt. For the text continues to say he was crucified by the hands of guilty men, lawless men. Human freedom is not obliterated by this decree, our confession says, but rather established by it. Now, the reason this is such a psychological problem for us is because of this correlativism thing. Well, if this is true, then some of my freedom is gone. It must be a sort of like a zero-sum game where God gets some freedom and I get less freedom or I get free choices and then God gets to respond to those choices. All of this is a deep corruption that doesn't start with the mystery of who God is. And once you start there, you can say, well, how is it then that God can know all these future choices and I can still make them freely? 
Here's my technical answer to that. I don't know. It's just taught all over the Bible. Herod, we heard this in the Acts 4 reading, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, did what? When they conspired and they crucified Jesus, what were they doing? The text says they did whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. Oh, my goodness. That's what they did. And this does not mean God approves of sin or that he's the author of sin. We distinguish between God's moral will, his commandments for creatures, his law, which says do this, don't do that. Right? We distinguish this moral will of God from his secret eternal decree, which is what we're considering here. So let me, let me try and clarify this because it's important to grasp this. Does God will innocent people to be executed? No. No. His moral law forbids it. Did God will for Jesus, who was innocent, to be executed? Yes. His eternal counsel decreed it. So Bavink uses the analogy that a father might forbid a child to use a knife, which the father uses to no ill effects. So God forbids rational creatures to commit sin, which he himself uses. He doesn't author it, but he uses it to glorify his name. This God who chose you in Christ from all eternity governs or decrees or, or works all things, Paul says, all things after the counsel of his will. So again... The difference between Calvinists and others on God's plan and predestination is ultimately a difference about the being of God himself, the I am he of Isaiah. The God who knows all is the God who decrees all, and the two cannot be separated. I mean, you can separate them. You're just going to have a God that's not the God of the historic Christian tradition. Which, by the way, and I say this in all love, is the God of the vast majority of people sitting in evangelical church pews. So, God's willing, like his knowing, is eternal. It's infinite, it's unchangeable, it's fully actual, it's not contingent, it's perfect. The omniscient God is unthwartable, unconquerable in his will. Finally then, Wisdom. So this should be predictable by now, but uh, I'll, I'll affirm it again. God's wisdom is not distinct from his will or his knowledge. God's wisdom is his knowledge, is his will. They're identical. So I'm, but I'm trying to make a, 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 a sort of a attached, adjacent point here with this third point. What I want us to see here is that when we talk of God this way, we're not talking about raw knowledge or some sort of cold, detached knowledge or some overwhelming brute force decree. Our God, the omniscient God, the God of the eternal decree, is wise. He is love. He is light. But here I want you to focus on this. He's wise. He's judicious. He's skillful. There's a kind of artistic beauty in God's knowing and willing. He's not like running roughshod over anything. This is why when we look at his work in creation, for instance, we see skill. 
And the Bible is using all of these architectural images. The, the language of a craftsman or an artist. So Proverbs chapter 8, for example, is, is marvelous in this regard. You can see God there as this master builder creating the world and organizing it. Or you can get this, this the language of aesthetic splendor and beauty and glory in Psalm 19. The heavens... What do the heavens tell us about God's knowledge and wisdom? They declare his glory. So God is wise. He's wise. I mean, even in human beings, knowledge and wisdom are linked together. God is wise in all of his ways and works. Here's Psalm 104. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. So this knowledge, this decree of God, this eternal knowing and willing, it's wise. And we glimpse it in the creation, but it becomes incarnate for us in Jesus Christ, who Paul tells us was made wisdom for us from God. He alone, Jesus says, we heard this in the gospel lesson, he alone knows the Father. And wills to reveal the Father to us. That you might know this God. You might know his wisdom. That you might know his will. So let me close by putting it this way. Do you find some of what was said here today about God's knowledge, will, and wisdom to be scandalous or difficult or counterintuitive or strange or maybe even a stumbling block? I'm sure some of you do. But it's important to understand this and be reminded of this, that when this wisdom and knowledge of God walks among us in the flesh, it turns out to be shockingly counterintuitive and scandalous and to take the form and the folly and the weakness of the cross. Like when God's wisdom and knowledge incarnates itself in human history, we don't think, oh, that's perfectly reasonable. That's just what I would expect. Pretty manageable. It's completely shocking. One thing I would charge you is, look, if you could be scandalized by Jesus Christ, then you probably are going to be scandalized by a robust doctrine of the triune God as well. I mean, this wisdom comes among us and it takes the form of folly, and yet it's a foolishness which is wiser than men. And to those who are called, it is Christ crucified, the very wisdom of God. What are we laying hold of when we come to the foot of the cross? The wisdom and the knowledge and the intellect and the skill of this God. That's why it's through the foolishness of preaching the foolish cross that the wisdom of God is manifest. That the only wise God saves a people for himself. In a certain sense, what I want to say here is Christianity is a strange religion all the way down, right? All the way from the top, all the way to the bottom. It's thick with mystery and wonder and counterintuitive things. And it's through the foolishness of preaching, the foolishness of an incarnate God in the foolish form of the cross that the God who is only wise, the all-knowing, eternal, decreeing God, gathers a people for himself. 
And thus, through that folly-shaped wisdom, there are and there shall be myriads upon myriads around the throne in heaven singing. And listen to what they sing. This is from the book of Revelation. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom. Not that we give wisdom, but we ascribe wisdom. Wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.